So I've been just reading through Matthew. So if you'll turn your, your Bibles to the book of Matthew, and we're going to start in chapter 11. And I just, what I've been doing is I've been reading, and the things that jump out to me, I just start journaling about them, asking the Lord questions. And I was asking the Lord what he wanted to preach, and I felt like he said, just to share what I've been giving you in our times together. So, um, so in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're, they're talking to him and they're saying, you know, John, John had a demon, you're a drunk, and, and Jesus is responding to, the, to their accusations. He says in verse 16 of chapter 11, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children. And I feel like this, what he says, this generation is talking about right now. Like this applies to us right now. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. How many of y'all have ever wondered, like, what does he mean, dance or dirge? Like, what is he talking about? We played the flute for you, you did not dance. We sang the dirge, you did not mourn. It's always, it's, you know, it's been a little cryptic to me, you know, over the years. And then he talks about John, and then he talks about himself. And so John the Baptist was the dirge. So a dirge is like a funeral song. John the Baptist came with a message of mourning. His lifestyle was not a pleasure-filled lifestyle. <laughs> John, he lived a fasted lifestyle. He ate locusts and honey. Like, he's not getting big on that diet, right? And that's, that's it. that is fasting in and of itself. And he lived out in the wilderness, and he was dressed in camel hair. So he's dressed in, like, more in clothes of mourning, He's fasting. David said, you humble yourself, your soul with prayer, with fasting. So he's, and, and uh, so humbling is a, it, fasting, excuse me, is a way of humbling yourself in mourning, so to speak. And so John the Baptist, he just, he was, he was the dirge. And Jesus is like, listen, John, he's out there. He's singing the dirge. But you're not listening. His lifestyle was offensive to people. He didn't drink alcohol. And John came in that spirit of Elijah announcing the change of epoch seasons. Okay, John was the transition of an epoch season from, from basically the old covenant to the new covenant. He was preparing the way and helping make the transition to Jesus, the, new covenant, the one who makes the new covenant possible. Jesus, he came eating, he came drinking. Jesus was turning water into wine. He, came, he went to parties. 
But Jesus also, he, he had the same message as John, though. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they had the same message, looked different. Right? Jesus didn't require his disciples to fast until after he was resurrected and ascended. Jesus ate with and drank with tax collectors and sinners. John separated himself from everyone. People came out to him. Jesus went to people, sat down with them, ate, ate with them. And Jesus, Jesus rebuked this generation, telling them that, that neither the wooing of God's love, which is the flute, which is what Jesus came to bring. He's like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes him shall not perish but have everlasting life nor the warning of judgments, which is the dirge. Move them. So you ha there's, right now what we're dealing with is when you, when you talk about judgment, you have people say, that's not the Father's heart. That's not the Father's heart. And then you talk about only the, the love of God, and you got people who's like, yeah, but you're missing the judgment. You're missing the judgment. God is both the God of love and the God of judgment, and they're not uh, incompatible. The judgments of God remove things that hinder love. So you go to Psalm 19, and it goes on about these things, about the Word of God, and one of the things it says is, is I'm going to turn there, because I might get it mixed up with some of the other things, but it says the fear of the Lord is clean. And I remember when this coronavirus thing first broke out, that's what the Lord was speaking to me. He said, Travis, the church needs the fear of the Lord because this nation needs cleaning up. <laughs> the fear of the Lord will clean things up. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So when God's judgments are right, they're righteous altogether. They make things right is another way to, to phrase that. God's judgments make things right. And so the coronavirus, I'm not saying that's from the hand of the Lord, Equality Act, things like of that nature. I'm not saying those are from the hand of the Lord, but they are being allowed. Hopefully the Equality Act won't be allowed. But coronavirus was allowed, right? <laughs> and, the, and so whether it was from the devil or not is God's, the question is, how do I respond? Like, God, what do you want? And I believe it's that rending of our hearts and not our garments. And so we don't want to be unmoved by the judgments of God or the love of God. Those are both messages of the Lord. And as, as people who walk in like the spirit of Elijah and, and, and that, that ministry and that anointing of preparing the way of the Lord, we have to be able to walk in both of those realities. We got to be able to walk in the love of God. God's a loving Father. You have access to everything in his house. That's like, how many of y'all know, that's like a huge message in my life. And, and the, the most profound encounter I've ever had with God 
was getting basically baptized in the Father's love back when we lived in Fort Worth. How many of y'all heard me tell that story? And so that's a huge, that's sonship, the Father's unconditional love. That's a huge message of mine. But guess who, guess who the Lord entrusted with the book of Revelation? Which apostle? The beloved one. The one who laid his head on Jesus' heart. The one who had the most profound understanding of the love of God. He gave the book of Revelation. He said, because you know the love of God, I'm going to entrust you with the book of the end time judgments and blueprint. He, John knew the dirge and the dance. He was moved by both of them. And that's where we want to be. We want to be a people moved by the dirge and the dance. We want to be, we want to be so know the love of God that he can trust us with the hard things. He can trust us with the unpalatable message, Not, mainly because we won't be moved by anybody else's love, whether they take it or give it away or take it or give it, but that we, we know who we are as sons and daughters, that we'll know how loved we are, that any kind of rejection, any kind of hardship doesn't matter because we know we're loved. Now turn to Matthew chapter 17. So hopefully y'all will get one of these will strike a chord in your heart. Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 24, it says, When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax, you know what? I just, I'm going to psych y'all out. We're moving on. Matthew 16. That was an extra one if we have time, but we've, anyways, I might come back to it. Matthew 16, verse 1, 4, and 15 through 17. Now the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Go down to verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and the sign will not be given, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Now this is, you know, it's, again, this is one of those interesting ones because you're like, I thought signs and wonders follow the gospel. And Jesus performs signs and wonders everywhere he goes. Verse 15, he says, he said to them, now he turns to the, his disciples after the Pharisees have tested him. And he looks at his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? Because the Pharisees are saying this and that. And he says, now who do you say that I am? Now Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, like I said, in Mark, in Mark chapter 16, Jesus says signs and wonders follow the preaching of the gospel. It says these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. And so that's, that phrase in Mark is key. These signs will follow Pharisees, scribes, 
follows those who believe. And Jesus is saying, you know, an evil and adulterous generation will not be given a sign even though they ask for it. So Jesus, what he's wanting to say is, I am the sign from heaven. <laughs> like, look at me. I'm the sign. But you're, you don't, you're not willing to examine your heart. You're not willing to have an honest heart in approaching me. What is the good soil in the parable of the sower and the, and the seed? It says, the good soil was an honest heart. You will find Jesus if you're seeking him with an honest heart. You will. And I've told people that when I've, when I've shared the gospel with them and maybe they weren't ready, but I felt like God said, tell them they have an honest heart and that they're going to be ripe one day. And so I've told him, I was like, I said, you know what? God's saying that you have an honest heart. And I said, if you, if you ask God to show, him to, uh, show himself to you, he will. Because you have an honest heart. And that seed's going to fall on good soil. They're like, I'll do that. I'll do that. You know? And so the honest heart is the good soil. Signs and wonders follow those who seek after the sign, who, who seek after Jesus. Those who want a sign from heaven but not the sign Jesus only want to be entertained and do not want to repent of their unbelief. The Pharisees basically was like, put on a show. Just like when Jesus was hanging from the cross, they're like, surely you can ask the angels to come and get you down. It was in a mocking kind of way. And so the moment of entertainment stops, they will still fall away because the Pharisees have no foundation. And I'm telling you, there's parts of our heart that are pharisaical. We have self-righteous parts of our heart that need to be crucified. If they can receive the sign of Jonah, which is the message of the cross, and taking up the cross, then signs and wonders will follow. Now, interesting thing about what Jesus called Simon. So Jonah means dove. Bar-Jonah means son of the dove. So Peter, what Jesus is saying here is, Peter, you're a son of the dove. You're a son of the Holy Spirit. He just showed you something. You're born again because you just, that what, of what just came out of your mouth. You are the Christ, the son of the, of the living God. And so Peter's revelation of Christ was birth of the Holy Spirit. And so we're all sons and daughters of the God, of, of God, of the dove, sons of the Spirit, born of the Spirit. There we go. All right, turn back to Matthew 12. Again, Jesus is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, and I believe what God's doing is he's, he's wanting to get, of these, get rid of these self-righteous places in our heart. He wants to get rid of these self-righteous places in our heart. So in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, it says, Now, Jesus is speaking, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. 
And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven, or seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Now, there is uh, multiple applications to this. This is... But I want to talk about it in the sense of the religious spirit. So, like I said, Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees. And the scribes and Pharisees, they are the example of what Joel talked about. They've, they've rendered their garments. Everything on the outside is good and clean and in order, right? But Jesus, he, Jesus devotes a whole chapter in Matthew called the woes <laughs> to, to this to the Pharisees. And it should be, we should not, when we read it, we shouldn't be like, man, those Pharisees, man, they just couldn't get it. We should look at it as like, is there any, Lord, is there any part of my heart needs, <laughs> needs to be cleansed? And so he's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, and they've cleaned up their house. Everything looks good. Everything's in order, swept clean, but it's unoccupied. Jesus said, your graves are filled with dead men's bones. Or, and so basically what he's saying is there's nothing in there. You don't have any life. You're dead on the inside. So it's this unoccupied house. Seven wicked spirits more wicked than the first go to occupy the house and the state of the man becomes worse than the first state. So I want to stop right there and just say you have a house and it's going to be occupied by somebody. You don't live in a vacuum. Your, your house does not live in a vacuum. Something's going to take residence in that house. It can be the Lord. It can be sin, that's, which is what we all have to deal with and get clean. It can be demonic. It's up to the choices that you make. And so self-righteousness cleans the house, but it does not have God occupying it. Now, the, so Jesus is saying... The Hebrew word for repentance, Hebrew words are word pictures. So each letter in a Hebrew word represents a picture. And so when you take the Hebrew word for repentance, and I'm just shortening this down so we can keep moving, it basically means burn the house down. Burn the house down. So when we repent, we're not cleaning the house getting everything in order and making everything look nice. We're burning the house down so Jesus can raise up a temple. <laughs> so Jesus can build something new. The only thing that's left, what Jesus doesn't say, if you abide in my word, like if you abide by my words, I'm going to build this beautiful house. He's like, no, you're going to have a foundation that I can build on that won't be swept away. Jesus wants to build a totally new house. He wants to build a temple that, that he gives the instructions for, where his glory can dwell. And that temple is Jesus Christ. Now that temple is living on in this inside of you. You're the temple of God. You have the Ark of the Covenant. You're a traveling tabernacle. We talked about this last week. And so he, Jesus is telling them that you need to be born again. And so, 
the, the spirit of repentance, part of what I've been praying for us, praying for the church as a whole, is for baptism of repentance. We need the gift of tears. And I believe that so much of what we're taking in in the world, whether it's through news, social media, whatever, so much of it is twisted, perverted, and it's got witchcraft behind it. I, mean, I honestly don't think we understand the level of warfare that's been happening in the nation. But I want to tell you this, God's got a remedy. It's called tears. It's called getting in touch with his heart. It's called rending your heart and not your garments. Bob Jones, he said this one time. He said, tears get the witchcraft out of your eyes. Tears get the witchcraft out of your eyes. How many of you have, have been, you know, just seen either by the mercy of God or, or you've repented or you've had godly sorrow and you've, you've wept over the goodness of God, the mercy of God, and his forgiveness, how clean did you feel when you got up out of that place? You just got a bath. You just got a bath in the Holy Spirit. And that's what the tears does. That's why I'm like, the tears are good. It's not, it's not this thing that we should run from. It's this thing we should ask for because it cleanses our eyes. It cleanses God's temple. And, he's, and that's what he's doing right now in this hour. He's cleaning his temple. But the tears, the broken heart, witchcraft can't deal with a broken heart. Witchcraft can't deal with a broken and contrite spirit because God won't despise that. Witchcraft can't deal with a humble heart because grace comes. What witchcraft likes is pride and rebellion. Old Testament says rebellion is as witchcraft. So what does that mean? It means sometimes you're, you're participating in control and manipulation even when you don't know it when you're in rebellion. The things that you're doing, rebellion is attempt to control, contrive, manipulate. Because you don't trust God. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says in verses 8 through 11, I'll just read this. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, I do not regret it. Now this, this Paul just, he wrote 1 Corinthians 13. Just so y'all know. He said, I caused you sorrow by my letter, and I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. But he's just like, listen, I wish there could have been another way. But you had to be brought to sorrow. And I'm not sorry about that, because that was the only way to bring you, bring you around to the Lord. I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. He's like, it's no good just to cry and not repent. <laughs> but you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Did you hear that? Repentance without regret. Leading to salvation but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. 
What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. Look at all this fruit that godly sorrow produced. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Godly sorrow, this is the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow makes you sorry for how your sins affected God and someone else. What you, when you get that, that godly sorrow, it's just like, I see how my sin has affected you. I see how my sin has grieved the Lord. Worldly sorrow is when you're sorry for how your sin has made your life hard. And I'll give you, because I've, in counseling, I've seen people, you know, they've confessed infidelity to me, and they're in depression because of the shame, and they're in, but all they can ask me is, how do I get rid of this pain? They just want to get out of the pain. And I tell them, it's like, I, I don't have any promises for you on that one. I said, this is, I said, this is going to take time to like restore trust. But all they want, they're, this is where they're looking at. Their choices created pain in their life. It finally caught up with them. And now they just went out of the pain. I'm like, did you have to, probably going to have to sit in this a while. It's just the, the way the process goes. <laughs> Worldly sorrow. What did Saul do when he did things wrong? He's like, well, I, I was trying to, I, I'm really sorry, man, but I just feared the people. It's Saul, all of his thoughts were about Saul. David, when he repented, he's like, oh God, how have I, I've grieved your heart and it's affected the people. David, he took a census in pride. 70,000 people got struck down by the angel of death. David was like, God, don't punish the people. Punish me. I'm the one that sinned. That's godly sorrow. It also is, speaks of when you're in authority, you carry your, the consequences of much, your decisions have much more far-reaching arms. That's a whole other sermon. So Peter's godly sorrow over his denial of Christ eventually led him to experience complete inner healing, while Judas's worldly sorrow led to suicide. Now, I'm not saying all depression and anxiety is because you're thinking about yourself. There's nuance, but what I am saying is worldly sorrow makes you only concerned about, it's still, you still are not learning about love. And I've been there. 